Welcome to Raising OKC Kids, Conversations with Metro Family in Oklahoma City. I'm Erin Page, and I'm joined today by Derek Barnes, who is here to share his expertise on conscious and subconscious biases in education. Welcome, Derek. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Erin. Thanks for having me. I am excited for the opportunity to learn from you today, but before we get started, I want to tell our listeners a bit more about you. Derek is a New York Times bestselling and multi-award winning author, acclaimed speaker, and father of four boys. Known for his fast-paced storytelling and featuring kids with superpowers, he's written more than a dozen books, including Victory, Stand, Raising My Fist for Justice, I Am Every Good Thing, and Crown, an Ode to the Fresh Cut. He's a graduate of Jackson State University and was the first African-American male creative copywriter hired by greeting cards giant Hallmark Cards. Derek has recently released his newest book, which we'll hear about today, Like Lava in My Veins, a graphic novel style picture book about a boy learning to deal with his big emotions and great teachers and friends who support him along the way. This book also shines a light on the subconscious and conscious biases that exist in education, specifically when it comes to Black boys, and how that affects them academically and emotionally. Derek, I want to start today by asking you how being a dad has influenced your career, your inspirations as an author, and then vice versa. How does your career impact you as a dad? Oh, you know, when I first started, my first two books were early reader books uh, entitled Stop, Drop, and Chill and The Lowdown, Bad Day Blues. It came out in 2004. Uh, I, I've been been in this business a long time. Uh, we only had one son at the time, Ezra. And it seemed like every time I landed a book deal, we had another child. <laughs> so I kind of fell, I fell into children's, you know, publishing when I was at Hallmark Cards. Uh, I landed a literary agent who who I've been with um, since then, Regina Brooks, and my uh, again my first uh, my two book deals were children's books. And once I started doing school visits and started doing more research and studying the whole industry and then the history of the industry, you see how important this job is. Uh, you you are creating works of literature that are an introduction to reading, an introduction to fine literature for children. And you also can move the needle in regards to, um, you know, cultural relevance and, you know, bringing the uh, bridge to, you know, connecting children that may come from different socioeconomic levels, different cultures. So I, I take what I do extremely seriously. And a lot of it has to do with tied in with raising these, raising these four boys. Um, they really influenced me more than I probably influenced them. Um, just seeing them grow. You all know that uh, parents seeing your babies grow and developing their own interests. But I, I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, me being a children's book author is just, you know, it's really no different than what every child sees their parent doing. Uh, you know, no matter if they're a janitor or, you know, an actress, uh, they just see me working hard. I think, uh, they get their work ethic from me. I know they're always watching me. Uh, what, what, you know, what's that old saying? You know, kids pay attention to what you do and not what you say. So, uh, you know, they've seen me grinding since 2004 and, and really discovering who I am. And um, 
what kind of author I want to be, which is closely tied to what kind of parent I want to be. I want to be somebody that, um, you know, that leaves a uh, positive influence on the world. Uh, somebody that's um, hopefully doing God's work and, and uh, putting books out there that make people think, that make children feel good about themselves. And that's closely tied to, you know, what kind of parent I want to be. And I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to be a better father every single day. Uh, and my boys are getting big now and you know, leaving the nest. We have two in college. I have one going to college next year and we have a 12-year-old. And uh, uh, I miss them. I miss them. I, I, I miss those early days, but I'm so proud of, you know, the young men that they're becoming. And uh, hopefully they will take a lot of the things that they learned when they were at the nest uh, out into the world as a, a phrase that we use around here and become a, a difference maker. So, uh, yeah, that, you know, being a dad and being a children's book author, it's uh, closely tied together. My boys have been a great influence on me. I love that. And I think that's such a testament that, you know, as parents, a lot of times we think we have to know everything so that we can raise these kids of ours. It's a lot of learning on the job, right? Yeah. I think it's such a good reminder for me, for all of our listeners that, that we get to continue to grow as a person and as a parent, um, as we raise our kids, it's okay to be learning alongside them. And I think your books are a really great opportunity for parents and kids to learn together. Um, I want to talk about your new book, Like Lava in My Veins. Tell us a bit about how Bobby, your main character, encounters subconscious and conscious bias at school. Uh, well, so so Bobby is a 11-year-old African-American boy who has the power of fire and light. And his parents send him to a school to help him to control his powers. But when he gets there, the teacher is not very welcoming. Uh, she won't call him uh, when he raises his hand. She constantly threatens him and makes him for uh, moving his feet or wanting to get up out of his seat. She threatens us to the principal office constantly. And uh, he goes home and tells his parents. Parents come up to the school and they get him transferred into a classroom with a very loving, understanding and kind teacher. Bobby is a very smart boy, very good at mathematics, but he was in an environment that didn't feel very welcoming. And and, and, and so I, I, I think I really want to tap into, um, you know, statistically black children, boys and girls are three to four times uh, more likely to be disciplined harsher. And so I just kind of wanted to uh, subconsciously hit and, and tie into those uh, things, but also, you know, the importance of a loving teacher and uh, those that do, everything they can from using their own resources to really trying to understand the culture of the children that they're teaching in order to maximize and optimize children's talents. I, I truly believe like if, if you don't really, if you don't know a child and if you don't get to know them and get to love them, how, how can you honestly say you can be a, a great educator if you don't know the children that you're teaching? So, um, Bobby Beacon meets Miss uh, Brooklyn, and at the end of the book, he has an opportunity to uh, flex his newfound control of his powers. I won't, I won't in the ending, but you'll have to read the book to see what happens. <laughs> I love that, um, and I think it speaks to we all have biases. Yeah, whoever we are, wherever we come from. And I know I have seen some really powerful 
change when if we're specifically talking about the school system when teachers or other volunteers are just willing to say yeah I probably do have some biases. What are those? Let me figure mm -hmm. out what those are and where they come from so that I can make more intentional choices. Yeah, I was, um, yeah, again, I've went down a rabbit hole um, after I've, I've had a few experiences with my boys. My oldest boy, always been a straight A student in seventh grade uh, in his art class. Uh, he got up out of his seat to wash his paintbrushes off and the teacher kicked him out of class. Uh, again, my my kid has never been a problem child, make straight A's. So I went up to school and, and got into it with the vice principal and that art teacher and basically told them when you kick a kid out of class, like physically kick them out into the hallway, you are saying you don't care if they learn for the rest of the day. And black boys in this country are more often uh, than not, you know, be suspended and they miss more school than anyone else. And those things kind of lend itself to you know, eventually uh, them dropping out of school, them being more involved in the, uh, uh, you know, juvenile detention centers and, um, you know, being in prison. So, you know, you hear this phrase, this uh, school to prison pipeline. A lot of that has to do with the way they are treated in school. So uh, I think like six years later, another one of my boys, they got into a little shoving match in gym class and the vice principal tried to suspend my my son, another straight student, for two weeks. Again, taking them away from instruction for two weeks that, that can't be good for any child. So uh, that's what kind of led me down the uh, uh, rabbit hole. And I, I saw one um, experiment that was done by Yale, where they had educators look at four children sitting at a desk. It was um, four beautiful children, white child, an Asian child, and a, a black girl and a black boy. And the teachers were watching them on a monitor and it was able to uh, uh, keep track of who they were watching the most. And they were supposed to watch the child who they thought was gonna um, get out of line or have uh, you know, discipline issues. And every single educator kept their eyes locked on the black boy. And, and so we have to start thinking about where these biases come from. And, and I think they're hardwired into this country, really. If you are raised in a homogeneous type of environment and where there aren't a lot of people of color, you get most of your ideas about those people from pop culture, the uh, negative conversations, even from family members. And, and so we have to start thinking about how do we, how do we, how do we break those type of negative ideas about people of color, uh, about people who don't look like us, especially if you're going to a situation where you're educating. You know, you're educating some of these children. You can't uh, take those biases into these classrooms. Or even if you are a physician, you can't take these those uh, biases into your clinic. And so how do we negative uh, mindsets and these negative biases? You know, I think I think that's the task ahead of us. And it's a big one. Um, I know I have seen some statistics um, that are exactly what you're saying here in Oklahoma City at um, school district that my kids have been in, that it was about that seventh and eighth grade year that when you look at disciplinary action across that student body, Black boys were statistically being disciplined more often. Um, mm -hmm. So I know that that was an issue that then we were looking at as a committee 
what, how do, how do we talk to the educators about this? How do we talk to parents about this? Because it wasn't that I think sometimes we can jump to, well, they're getting in trouble more often. So what are they doing? Right. So what are the boys doing? And that wasn't the problem. Um, Mm -hmm. I think we've got to circumvent that and get Mm -hmm. to how are we looking at these children and what do we need to do? What accommodations do we need to provide teachers and students so that we're not in that situation? Um, I appreciate you sharing those experiences that you have had with your sons. What what does that look like for your boys or in general? What does that look like for them? Um, How how does that affect them? in the short term, and then maybe in the long term, you talked about that school to prison pipeline. I think I think in the short term, it creates a negative mindset for that child in regards to the way they see education, the way they see how their some uh, seven to nine hours are going to be spent five days a week in an environment where there are people who don't really care about, or, or at least it's that way there are people who don't love and don't care about them um i think you know agency is a huge uh issue in regards to the way it sees um the educational environment there and those are children who are um in lower economic um you know environments they have less agency at school meaning they have have, have left less opportunities to, to uh, speak up less opportunities to really uh, you know, be free or or at least to feel freedom. And when that happens, they are going to respond in languages and in body language and in you know behavioral patterns that are familiar to them. And if you're not familiar with it, so you know, let's just let's just talk about black girls the way black women are, um, and you know, and not to generalize black women, but all the black women I know have a lot of. Um, a lot of radiant energy. Uh, they are not afraid to speak their mind. But if you come from outside of that environment, it may be perceived as something else. And so if, if that child is not allowed to speak up, not allowed to express themselves, uh, imagine what that does long-term. Again, spending eight hours in an environment where you don't feel like your strengths and your abilities are appreciated. So uh in order to do that, I always always say, if, if, if you're in an environment where you are teaching children who may not look like you, you have to do everything you can to insert yourself into that culture. So when those babies invite you to cheer practice or when they invite you to basketball games, you need to go. If they invite you to come to their black church on uh, Sunday, you need you need to go. You need to go to church. You need to really try to understand the family structure and the communities that these children come from in order to really not only teach them better, but to, you know, communicate with them better. Uh, so um, it, it, it takes, it's going to take a lot of effort. Uh, it's going to take a lot of self-exploration and it's going to take a lot of truth seeking to uh, really realize that we, uh, again, same thing you said, we all live with these biases, but um, if, if you're going to be uh, the kind of teacher that I, I know most want to be you have to find a way to uh, uh, challenge these biases and the best thing the best way to do it in my opinion is to admit that you have them and then try to immerse yourself into the culture of the children that you are teaching 
Absolutely. Um, and I appreciate in your book that you depict a teacher who's getting it right, who is showing what so many great teachers um, across the country are doing at the beginning of this school year, getting to know the kids in their classes for who they are, for those strengths. So what, how do we, how do we get there? You've talked about kind of looking at our biases, understanding those, what other actionable ways, or how do we get there? What, what are, can you give us some steps for families or for teachers that can help us see and challenge the racial inequities that exist in our school systems this year? Yeah, I think it's, it's a huge issue all over the country, and it has been, you know, for decades. And for the school districts that have really um, um, took it on and really made it um, a priority in order to fix it, there are some of the things that they've done. They've uh, increased the number of Black teachers uh, in their education pool there's been research done that all all children benefit from having teachers of color in particular black teachers and not just for black children but for white children as well uh, another thing that can be done is to increase the number of uh, counselors at uh, each school and not only to deal with racial issues but just social emotional learning issues so um, just to have a more diverse and and to increase the number of counselors you know at each school uh, another thing is to I think the uh, schools that have gotten it right is uh, are the ones that have changed their you know, discipline codes. They have rewritten their discipline codes. So uh, a lot of the infractions that black children um, uh, face uh, are like minor things, like um, you know talking back to a teacher, maybe um, dress code, you know violations, uh, having their phone out when they're not supposed to, and these things uh, lead to one week in two week suspensions. I think I think these discipline codes need to be rewritten and also just using a lot of common sense, you know, uh, but it, we can't move away from those biases, which, which which is really the main issue, because you have a white child, a black child kind of doing the same thing and the black child will receive much harsher you know, discipline. So I think uh, training will be you know necessary uh, biases uh, training. And again, it's all up to the teacher to really be honest with themselves and say, this is this is something that I struggle with. And um if 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 they continue to struggle with it, obviously we, we have to we have to do a better job of vetting the uh teachers that uh educate our children that that are that are present in these spaces. So um and also, you know, we you know, I think we've mentioned this before. I I don't know if I mentioned it, but I read a story about how um, you know, suspension numbers went down. We talk about conflict resolution because they use uh, tactics like you know meditation. Uh, they use tactics like uh, peer circles where children actually sit into a circle with maybe a counselor or an educator, and they talk openly about the things that are troubling them. They talk openly about uh, some of their own you know disciplinary um, issues. And so peer circles work. Meditation seems extreme, but it, I, I, it has it has been proven to work. But these things only work if you care about the children that you are teaching and have to take those extra steps. Um, because kicking them out of school is not the solution uh, unless you want to keep that um, school to prison pipeline open. And, and, and we need as many good people as possible in our environment. We need as many educated 
uh, people in our environment. So uh, we have to do everything I can, everything we can to keep those babies in their seats and feel like they are uh, loved and, 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 and that the uh, people that are responsible for educating them actually love and, and uh, care about them. So um, there's a lot of things that we can do. And I, you know, hopefully some of those things work. Um, they have worked for us here. Uh, just being able to be open. So we, again, we have four boys, so it's not really, it's really hard to get them to talk about their emotions, but uh, having those open conversations really uh, lead to, you know, solutions. So, um, yeah, hopefully there are some of the things that they could do. That's so helpful and such great kind of talking points for parents to be able to go into the school year having those in mind. Um, I was thinking about a teacher that my oldest kiddo had several years ago who she was new to the school and she sent out an email a couple of days after the year had started to say, um, I want to revamp the library of books I have in my classroom because it's not representative of the kids that are here. I want everybody in my class to have a book with a character that looks like them that they can go grab from the shelf. And she was also really good about facilitating conversations um, among the kids in her class. I know there was um, a little girl who was Muslim and she had the opportunity to share about uh, some of the holidays that she was observing that the other kids in the class knew nothing about. And my daughter thought that was the coolest yeah. thing to have the opportunity to learn about that. Um, so those are super small things, but to me as a parent, it was like an aha moment. Yes, of course we should, this is what we should be doing. And whether it's a teacher suggesting this or a parent saying, do you need more books in your class? Yeah. Or can I, can I go get some books for the library? Or how can I help be part of the solution here? Yeah, you know, contrary to anything you may have heard, our diversity is our strength. You know, the more we learn about each other, the more we learn about, you know, the way we, you know, conduct ourselves in our homes. We also will be able to see the similarities that we have. Um, I, I think, I think, I think no harm can be done from learning about the way someone else lives and learning about the history, the language of someone else. It, it, it can only make us strong. So, um, you know, we're, we're also dealing with um, book bans across the country right now. And I think that really limits the way educators, you know, can educate. So that's 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 something that we have to, you know, continue to fight back against. Uh, again, we 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 will only be made stronger if we accept, you know, the many differences that make up not only in our classrooms but in our cities and in this country. So um, I'll keep doing my part in writing uh, uh, books about beautiful black children. But I also make it a point to make sure that I show the similarities that we all have so that every child will be able to see themselves in the uh, books that I write because uh, that's what this country was built on. Those those are our uh, strengths. Our differences are our strengths in this country. And uh, we have to do everything I can, everything we can in order to keep that alive and well. One of the other things that Bobby in your book deals with is his big emotions, which get him labeled as a problem kid. Yeah. As parents, 
how can we ourselves and help our kids dispel that notion of the problem kids and help our kids kind of look at that situation with curiosity to think through, I wonder what's going on with that friend that is impacting their behavior. And what can we say about that child in your class that is a strength? How do we kind of reset that perspective? Yeah, I think a lot, a lot of it is just knowing what, uh, how a kid is made up and, and how they respond to certain you know, situations usually when a kid is uh, acting out, it's, it's in response to, you know, some type of emotional uh, issue, some type of emotional need. And so, um, you know, even with our own children, you know, having having these four boys, four totally different people, we discipline them differently. Uh, we communicate with them differently. Um, my uh, third son, who's actually on the, uh, the cover of uh, Crown and Go to the Fresh Cut, uh, you know, you know, for example, with him, he likes more one-on-one -on -one time. And I find that he has acted out, you know, throughout the years when he's not getting that one-on-one -on -one time, meaning taking him away from the other three boys and just spending quality time with him. Not only does that, uh, it, it helps him to calm, calm his nerves, but it also allows him to open up. So we have to figure out what each child needs in order to, again, optimize you know, their abilities and being able to open up. Um, conversation is so important. We have a whole family conversation on Sunday evenings, right before the week starts, uh, obviously, you know, which involves prayer as well, but just an open conversation around the table about what everybody's looking forward to for that upcoming week and how they're feeling about the upcoming school year and those type of things. So, I'm 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 really big on conversation and having you know whether it's in a group or in a you know individual setting, but getting to know each child and understanding why. And you know in the book, Bobby uh, he erupts and he melts down his desk, and it's not because he's a problem child, but he can be perceived that way. But he melts down the seat because the teacher refuses to call on him, and he knows the answer. And he, he either has to find a way to better emote or the adult in the classroom needs to, needs to figure out a way to include Bobby in the situation. So there's always a reason um, why these kids so-called act out. But if, if we don't know how to approach them and how to discipline them and how to get them to open up, uh, you know, that, that type of behavior will always be a problem. But um, um I'm a very talkative type of parent and I like to spend, you know, individual time with each one of them. I think it will behoove uh, other parents and also educators to do the same thing. You know, the more you understand a person, again, the better you can teach them and the more you understand the way they work and the way they tick. So I'm, I'm, I'm all about those uh, private moments and uh, private conversations. What is your vision for how this new book could inspire more conversations and action around what you're saying, moving away from over-disciplining students and celebrating, featuring educators who are making use of more proactive methodologies like social-emotional learning or incorporating meditation into kids' days? Mm -hmm. I, well, I hope to 
But I hope the educators uh, feel loved. I always, I always try to incorporate um, positive educators in all of my books, even like the King Kindergarten, Queen of Kindergarten. I try to infuse uh, these beautiful families. But I, I think the most thing I hope the educators get out of it, and, and we've already talked about this, is to be honest with yourselves about the biases that we bring into all our situations, and not just in the classroom, but the way we view people that may I mean, I look like us. And and once you're honest with that, and then the next step is to take act and say, what can I do to do away with these biases? Because um, I, I think as long as we're alive, we're going to be able, we're going to perceive people um, in ways that may or not be honest or may, or may not be true. But I, I think I think the most important step is always start with uh, viewing each person as a human being. And treat them the way you would want to be treated. That's that's the oldest adage in the book. Um, so hopefully they take away that that, that that I need to address any any biases that I have, and I also need to do whatever I can. And I know most educators do; they do everything they can in order to teach their babies, in order to uh, maximize their education. Uh, so. So all the educators out there that they get their hands on Like Lava in My Veins, that book was written for you with hopes that you continue to do everything that you can in order to get the most out of the children that you're teaching, whether they look like you or not, they uh, come from the same part of town that you do or not, that in, in those seven to nine hours, they are your babies and, and uh we want to maximize everything that those children can be so that they can grow up to be difference makers. They can all grow up to be difference makers and it begins with you. And it also begins with parent involvement. And we have to work together to make sure that we get everything we can out of our children who are going to be the future leaders of this country. So this book is for y'all. I am thinking about that emotional regulation and how maybe I as a parent can help the teachers that I'm sending my kids um, to sit in their classrooms. Yes. What are some good coping strategies that your character learns in the book or that you've used at home with your sons that our families listening, that my family could use to, to cope with some of those big feelings around the beginning of the school year? Well, I think, you know, from the educator standpoint, one of the things that um, I put in the book is something that I do when I go and do school visits. Um, every time a child comes up to my table to get a book signed, I look at them directly in the eyes and tell them how happy I am to see them. That that, that means a lot to a child. Um, you know, from an educator's point of view, you've seen some of these videos with these teachers have these special hand, handshakes with each child as they come into a room. The, the child needs to know that you care about seeing them that day, that that that, that their presence is valuable. Um, so I, I think that's I, I think that's so important. And one of the things that we use in the uh, books, one of the things we use at home is meditation. And it doesn't have to be very complicated, but we're talking about just quiet time in order to center yourself. You know, close your eyes. Deep breathing, deep breathe in, inhale, exhale, nothing very complicated, but 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 just being able to have the child to center themselves. And sometimes it's counting. So we have a quiet time for 30 seconds where we sit on the floor and we close our eyes and we 
make our bodies go limp and we and we just think about the most pleasant things that we can think about and you will be amazed at how that changes the whole mood of the room so um you don't have to be a uh expert at you know meditation but uh just uh, just allowing a child to center themselves will make all the difference in the world I love the idea of practicing that as a family, because then when the child is at school and they're feeling some big feelings, they can kind of come back to that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, it was uh, a story I read in uh, 2018 where a school um, used, you know, meditation and suspensions went down by like 63%. So wow. uh, yeah, <laughs> they make a huge difference. I love that. Derek, as we close out our conversation today, what is your top piece of advice for parents on raising kids who lead with compassion, both for themselves and for others this school year? I think to have an open mind, um, to not be hard on yourself. I think we, I think we all have a, a tendency to get it right all of the time and you're not going to be perfect in the way you interact with other people, you're not going to always say the right things. But as long as, as that intent is there to try to interact with people, um, you know, in the right manner, to have compassion again, to treat people the way you want to be treated, uh, I, I think I think they'll be in for a great school year. Um, extend yourself, um, especially to those children who. Uh, have a hard time communicating who may or may not have friends. Uh, I, I tell my children all the time to, to be the light when you enter into a room. That means that when when you enter a space, people are looking forward to having a conversation with you because you are the one that always leaves them with something positive. It may be a compliment on uh, the way they may be dressed that day or uh, maybe a compliment about how they did on that last test that they did, but always be the light. Always be the light. I love that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Derek. I am feeling much calmer, more hopeful, and yes. more empowered for the school year. That's right. so we're, thank we're you. Gonna be all right. We're going to be all right. Everyone have a great rest of your summer and have an outstanding school year. Thanks for the great work that you do every day, Derek. I know Thank that you. my kids are going to be excited when I download some of your books for them. Looking Thank forward you. to it. Appreciate that. Thank you. For our listeners, find more presentations by nationally renowned parenting experts like Derek through membership in the Modern Art of Parenting. Visit modernartofparenting.com to learn more about memberships, which are just $19 a month or $199 for the year with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Thanks everyone for listening. Join us next time on Raising OKC Kids.